making our way through Revelation, uh, we are largely stepping back and looking at Revelation in large passages. It is a book that is meant to be seen. It is a book that meant to be felt. It's like a symphony. There's ups and downs. There's climaxes. And so uh, we're trying to capture that as we make our way through. Um, we could certainly spend much more time in any one of these passages, and this certainly would be one of those days in chapter 13. We could spend several, several weeks in this passage. And so if you do have questions and we are unable to answer them in uh, the sermon time, feel free to text them in. And if we have time at the end, we will try to do that. Uh, so before we dive into chapter 13, let me recap chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see that Christ has defeated Satan. In fact, five times we read that Satan has been thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. John makes it very clear Satan has been defeated. And we're told because he's been thrown down, he knows his time is short. He knows the day of his destruction, which we read about in chapter, at the end of 19 and chapter 20, where he'll be thrown to the lake of fire. He knows that day is coming, and therefore we're told because he knows the time is short, he comes to earth in great wrath. And so now Satan is focused on earth in great wrath, and we saw last week that the church is pictured as in the wilderness between salvation and between the return of Christ, between the, the true promised land. Just as Israel was in the wilderness from the Exodus until they reached the promised land, symbolically, that is now where we are also. And so uh, it is in this wilderness that now Satan comes to attack. And so that's what chapter 13 is about. It's about the war that he seeks to engage upon the church. And so uh, we're going to look at this war today. Now, there are some people who read uh, chapter 13 other parts, and they will say, I believe that that actually doesn't take place until much later, until maybe a small period of time right before the end of history, um, which I would argue <clears throat> that chapter 13 actually explains back in chapters 2 and 3 when we read about seven churches that are experiencing war and persecution. Some are being killed. Some uh, know that they will be killed. Some have false teachers within them that this chapter explains why that is happening. Um, and when we understand that this applied to the first century, to church history, and to all of us today, we understand the urgency of this message now and the need for its application uh, and so one thing we do here is we stand when we read the Word of God. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. We're going to read all of Revelation 13. And if you're new here to gathering with us, you haven't been in Revelation, yes, this will sound like a very strange chapter. Because even if you've been here, this is a strange chapter. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can stand against it? 
And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Father, Father, we pray for wisdom today. And we do come confidently to your scripture because of the indwelling presence of your spirit within us. Whom you promise gives us wisdom, gives us understanding. And Lord, that's what we pray for today. God, use this passage to strengthen our faith. Use this passage as a means of helping us better understand the attacks of Satan of the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in, of the battle between two kingdoms. God, increase our understanding today. Help us to see the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, that we who have faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have no need to be afraid. For we are already conquerors in your Son. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. May we know that. Yet may we also feel the weight of this war. And God, may we know how to respond. May we know how to encourage and pray for others. May we be filled with zeal to share the gospel because we know that there is a war in this world. Be with us today, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Now remember... Revelation is a different kind of book. It's apocalyptic literature. This means we read it differently than we would narrative or or some of the letters that we have. In in the narratives or in letters, what you do is you, you read the very literal understanding of the text. And if you don't understand it, then you would go to a symbolic understanding. But in apocalyptic literature, the rules are changed. 
Just as, um, just as different literature today is meant to be read differently, if we read poetry, poetry is read differently than you read the Wall Street Journal. And so when we come to apocalyptic literature, we do not start first with the literal meaning. So we are not expecting beasts to literally come out of the sea, because if we did, we'd all be standing on the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean, somewhere, actually looking for these to come. But what we understand is that we first go to the symbolic meaning, and if that does not seem to help, then we would try a literal meaning. And I would argue then the symbolic meaning would actually be the literal meaning of the intention of the author. Does that make sense? This is what he is trying to communicate. So if we actually want to know the true literal understanding of the author, when we know what the genre is, we read it as it's meant to be. And so as we read today, I would argue the symbolic understanding is the literal understanding of this text. So if you're new, that might help, as we have said that several times here, making our way through Revelation. Um, So chapter 12 ends, and it ends with the dragon, Satan, coming to earth, and he has great wrath. And we read at the very end of chapter 12. This is why uh, chapter divisions are sometimes awkward. They don't always do it right, because they're... They're made by us. But if you look at the very end of chapter 12, the last six words or so, and it says, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, that that really goes into chapter 13. So we have the dragon. He stands on the sea and the sand, and he now sees, and, and he's calling forth these beasts. And this is what John now sees. And so we're going to look at each beast individually, and we'll look at the mark, and we'll try to tie it all together, and there's a whole lot that we're going to go through. So most likely, I won't cover all the answers to your questions, and I might not know many of the answers to your questions. Uh, I have felt fairly confident with many of the chapters coming through this book so far as we have uh, made our way. This would be by far the, the hardest of the chapters that we have gone through so far but yet, I think we can understand the, the clear meaning. There's a clear meaning to it. But there are details that are, are difficult to wrestle with. Um, so we start with the first beast. First, we're going to see he reflects the dragon. If you look at verse 1, he's, he's a seven-headed beast with ten horns coming out of the sea. Well, if you go to chapter 12, verse 3, so go back left one page, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, this is Satan, with seven heads and ten horns. So do you see the beast images the dragon? And he comes out of the sea. The sea in apocalyptic literature refers to chaos, refers to the home or the origin of evil, which is why when we're in Revelation chapter 21 and we're reading about the new heavens and new earth, what does it say is not going to be there? There will be no sea. Now, of course, there might be, but it's symbolically saying there is no evil in the new heavens and new earth. And so out of the evil chaos, out of the sea, comes his first beast. And notice in verse 2, he shares power, the throne, and authority with the dragon. And in verse 3, he's worshipped with the dragon. So this beast is a clear representation of the rebellious evil nature of Satan himself. We clearly see that. He looks like him. He resembles him. He shares his authority. He sits on the throne with him. But that also sounds fairly similar to something else we've been reading about in Revelation, doesn't it? Christ 
is the very image of God. He shares power, authority, and the throne with God. And we know that when we look into the very face of Christ, He is the brilliance, the radiance of the very glory of God. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Christ is the image of God. And what we see there is this, is this dragon, or this beast, is meant to reflect the image of the beast, just as Christ reflects the image of the Father. Uh, and, and what we see here, is in verse 3, the beast is said to have a mortal wound. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. The literal translation of that is one of his heads, or is one of his heads was slain. And so it was slain. Now, now who else has been slain in Revelation? In Revelation chapter 5, we read about the lion, the tribe of Judah, right? Or the lion of Judah, who stands before the throne, ready to take the, the scroll from God. And we look at, the, at this lion, and what is he? The lamb who was slain. And in fact, if you look down in verse 8, there is a book. And the title of this book is, The Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. And so we have Christ who was slain and yet has risen victorious over sin and death. And so now we have a beast who images forth the dragon, shares his power, shares his throne, shares his authority, also appeared to be slain and yet has healed or appears to have healed. And so we see that this truly is a counterfeit Christ or some would say an anti-Christ type figure who has come as a representative or as a false representation of Christ. And so then, who is this beast? Can we actually understand who he is? Well, I would argue we can know exactly who he is, and you'll see what I mean by exactly in a few moments. Um, the, identity, the identity of the beast. We're in Revelation. One thing that we've said probably almost every single week is if we're going to understand this book, we're going to have to understand much of the Old Testament because it continually pulls from imagery, from passages in the Old Testament as a means of helping us understand what John is talking about here. So when John uses these images, when John is, is drawing forth, he's doing so largely from the Old Testament. And in Daniel 7, if you remember, we began this year in the book of Daniel. There was a reason for why we did that. It prepared us for also for Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 7, one of the key passages in the book, we read four beasts come out of the sea. The first one was like a leopard, or like a lion. The second one like a bear, and the third one like a leopard. And so here we have a beast, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And then there's a fourth beast in Daniel 7 that we're told is too terrifying for him even to mention. And in Daniel, we understand that these four beasts represent four kingdoms. Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and Rome. All of these kingdoms sought to oppress and destroy the people of God. So clearly that's what the beasts are. The beasts are secular, agency, secular state agencies that seek to oppress the people of God. But as we read in Daniel 7, we also read of a horn. And this horn comes from the fourth beast. And in verse 25 of chapter 7 in Daniel, this is what we read. 
referring to the horn. He shall speak words against the Most High, and they shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, which we have argued and shown that that not only refers to the 1,260 days, but also the 42 months, which we see here, which refers to the church age in between the first and second coming of Christ. We also read that in chapter 7 of Daniel, this horn will make blasphemous claims against God. And so clearly, this beast in Revelation 13 is the culmination of the horn and the beasts of Daniel. Therefore, we conclude that it represents secular state powers and individuals who seek, who seek to persecute the people of God. So what does that look like first century? Who are we talking about? Well, very likely Nero of Rome, who was called a beast. Very likely Domitian of Rome. And in fact, when we look at history throughout the Bible, we see Pharaoh of, ba- of, of Egypt was a type of antichrist type figure, right? He was a beast representing all of Pharaoh, oppressing the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar certainly would fit this. Antiochus Epiphanes certainly fits this, which if you remember when we were in Daniel, as we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, and 11, we see that Antiochus Epiphanes actually is the first fulfillment of who this horn is, pointing us forward to a much greater persecutor of the church. Since then, we would see people like Stalin of the Soviet Union, Hitler of Germany, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, and so forth. So we have seen all throughout history uh, figures and states who seek to oppress the people of God, to crush the church, to destroy Christianity. We see that this beast, also here in chapter 13, demands total worship. In verse 8, we read that all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Verse 7, we see that his authority is everywhere. It's in every tribe and people and nation and language. So what I think that's referring to is not necessarily one global empire, but I think what it's saying is that we're going to see as we make our way from the first coming to the second coming of Christ is that in every nation, every tribe, and every culture, there will be those who seek to oppress the people of God. Now, it may also refer to the fact that one day there might be one type of large entity and maybe one, one possible person who has great influence over the world, potentially. But that would be where things get more murky as we go forward Uh, so in the first century this probably referred to emperor worship remember when we're in chapters two and three and what we've said otherwise in the first century uh, to worship the emperor uh, was a common practice and, and to refuse to worship could get you thrown in exile like john on patmos it could lead to your death it could lead to you being socially Uh, physically and economically estranged from your society. Your your house, your business would be boycotted. And so there was great pressure to fall into the emperor worship for the survival of your own family. We see that he possesses the power to kill. In verse 15, we see that all who do not worship the beast will be slain. Well, earlier in chapter 2, remember Antipas, 
from the church of Pergamum was killed. And we're told Smyrna, Smyrna has 10 days. Remember, 10 is a number of completion. And it's 10 is a small number, so it might be a short, perfect period of time. But Smyrna is told that they're about to go through persecution and some of them will die. And so this is happening in first century as the readers are reading this book. They're going, yeah, we know exactly what he's talking about. Yes, this beast is alive today. So very likely that is how they would have understood it in the first century. And now we make our way to the second beast. And now the second beast, he also reflects Well, he reflects the first beast who reflects the dragon. Uh, This beast comes out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like the dragon, we are told. In verse 12, we see that it shares in the authority of the first beast with what what authority did the first beast have? The same authority as the dragon, which is Satan. And so this beast shares in that authority, which also shares in the authority of dragon. And so we see that he is a, a type of antichrist figure counter he's also a counterfeit christ also verse 11 we read that he has two horns like a lamb now the word lamb is used 29 times in revelation 28 times it refers to jesus christ our lord and savior what do you think it means when 28 times Lamb is referred to Jesus. Now, one time, in referring to a person who is leading to the worship of something other than Jesus, is being used. Clearly, we now have another impersonation of Christ, an imposter. Some would call this a false spirit, a counterfeit Christ. In Revelation 16, 19, and 20, he's referred to as the false prophet. And so that is how he is labeled. So the first beast is often known as the beast or the Antichrist. And the second one is known as the false prophet. And we see that he promotes worship. Verse 12, we see that it makes the people of earth worship the first beast. Which if we worship the first beast, who is the image of the dragon, we're essentially worshiping Satan. So how does he do this? Verse 14, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived and according to verse 16 all types of people small and great rich and poor free and slave they all fall into this deception he's going to use deceptive means as luring people from worshiping god from worshiping christ to really, and I'll argue later, to, to anything other than Christ. He performs miracles uh, to deceive. We see in verse 14, he does miracles, uh, he does signs and miracles. And, and notice, if you were here with us in chapter 11, he calls fire down from heaven, which is very much what we saw the church, in a sense, does in chapter 11, uh, showing that the power of the Spirit is with him or is with the church. And so here, he's definitely impersonating the way the Spirit empowers the church as we proclaim Christ here on earth. And all of this happens as a means of deceiving the nations, as a means of luring people away from Christ. And we see that he's successful. In chapters 2 and 3, when we look at those churches, we see that the teachings of Balaam are there, the teachings of the Nicolaitans are there, and that... uh, 
Thyatira has actually entertained a woman named uh, Jezebel, who's a false prophetess, to come in and she speaks lies and spreads a false gospel. And so, in the first century, the false gospels aren't just outside the church, but they're making their way right inside the church through these false teachers. So, so let's make a few just summarizing comments. First, between the dragon and these two beasts, we have an unholy trinity that is bent on deceiving and destroying the church. Clearly, while we can argue about various things, and there's some things that are quite complicated, we have an unholy trinity. Purposes to destroy, purposes to deceive the church. We cannot miss the fact that we are at war. And what we see is neutrality is not an option. You're either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Satan. You either have the mark of God, the seal of God, or we will see you have the mark of Satan. That has always been the options. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they went from the presence of God outside the presence of God. There are two kingdoms. There's always been two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And they are not equal kingdoms. I won't even try to go back to the Star Wars thing, which I butchered last week. Thank you, all of you who were able to correct me after the sermon. I know nothing of Star Wars. As you know, my family is uh, Avengers, superheroes. We are Marvel, not DC. And that is very much worth fighting over. Um, but we're at war here. Satan works through physical state powers as a means of oppressing the church. We see this. And, and that's happened always, right? Exodus, or Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh is literally throwing Hebrew babies into the Nile River to kill them. What is the plan? Well, for him, he's thinking he's just attacking the people of God. Satan, he's going to prevent the serpent crusher from ever coming. Matthew chapter 2, we have Herod killing male babies. Why? Stop the serpent crusher from ever coming. There are two kingdoms always presented in the Bible. There is the one true kingdom of God, and there is the false kingdom of Satan who continues to try to attack the kingdom of God and yet will continue to fail. Many countries today are closed to the gospel. Christians must sneak in smuggling Bibles into these countries. And much of the world today, even as Ben has slightly alluded to, it doesn't always look like this. But there are secret underground churches. And they come into those churches at different times of the day. They don't say 10 o'clock we gather. Because if we gather at 10, everyone knows we gather at 10 and persecution comes. So they, they come in sporadically at different times and they stay for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours as they memorize the Word of God and they hear it preached. If Christians are found, they will be arrested, persecuted, and or killed. Violence seems to only be increasing against the church on a very global scale. There have been more Christians killed in the last 200 years than in all other centuries combined. Like We need to know this. Both kingdoms are advancing. Both kingdoms are growing. Kingdom of God is growing. We're seeing more and more followers of Christ come every single day. And yet, the kingdom of Satan is growing also in its power. And we know, Jesus said, that's what will happen until he comes at the end of the days. 
Here in America, we've also seen an increasing attitude of intolerance against the church. Christians are called bigots and narrow-minded for not supporting LGBTQ. Here in the Northwest, it is illegal for counselors to counsel against such. And throughout the county, or throughout, throughout the country, we see cases where Christians are now being sued for possibly uh, the way they want to handle their practices uh, of Uh, of their businesses. Even certain counties have created laws about specifically limiting or preventing churches from coming in or new churches from being planted in certain cities. America is growing in hostility against the church. Now in addition to just simply state powers and figures, we see that there are more and more religions today that deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, almost every letter in the New Testament will warn us against false teachers. Matthew, uh, in 1 John 2, we're told, Antichrist come out of the church. We need to know this. We don't just look outside the church. And in fact, regularly in the New Testament, we're told to be very watchful about those inside the church, which is one of the functions of elders. In fact, uh, church history, uh, reformers, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope has largely been called the Antichrist, if that's new to you. Um, the world is full of false religions, all seeking to deceive people into worshiping anything other than Jesus Christ. That's what we must see here. Whether through state persecution or deception or false religions, Satan's goal is for us to worship anything other than the one true God. And because of this increased hostility, it is becoming increasingly difficult for people to come and believe in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. They might lose their life, their friend, their families, um, their jobs. For a person to leave Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, Mormonism, Judaism, they risk losing everything. This is a very common practice in most of the world. We need to pray for the church. And we need to pray for those who we're sharing the gospel with. That the Spirit would move them and they would count the cost of coming to Christ as so much more precious than staying in this world. And so one thing, and this is my plug for tonight, might do several more. We're gathering for prayer. We look at this as an essential time. We encourage you to come. We're going to have tables in here, and we gather for the purpose of praying for us, of praying for the global church, because we need prayer. Our families need prayer. Our friends need prayer. The church as a whole needs prayer. Those who we are seeking to minister to, to evangelize to, we need to pray the Holy Spirit will work in them and that we can help them in all ways that we can as they leave. Whatever whatever lifestyle they had as they now come to believe in Jesus Christ. Science also has sought largely to discredit Christianity. To be a Christian scientist, you risk losing your reputation, your job, promotions. I so appreciate Robert Bodie, who's now downstairs uh, teaching our young kids. He is a Christian, uh, Christian scientist. Well, no, I won't say that. Uh, he's, a science, he's a Christian who is a scientist, and uh, he's a biology teacher over at St. Martin's. Amazing man. Loves, loves God. But we must not be deceived. These beasts are very much alive today, and they want nothing more than your allegiance. And their messages are very deceptive. 
They want your soul. They want their mark on you. In fact, let's look at the mark, verses 16 and 18. The mark of the beast. Oh, the amount of books that could be burned because of the terribleness that have been written on this. We would not need wood for a very, very, very long time. I encourage you, if you have a book, just, just, just tear that up. Um, I would imagine there's so many wrong books on this. Uh, so let's just say, what do we see? What do we see? What does the Bible tell us? Verse 16. Um, well, first we see uh, verse 16, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. We'll just say here or here. Does that sound familiar to anything in the Bible? Deuteronomy chapter 6, the re-giving of the law. Moses encourages the people of God. He's telling them, this is what it is to be the people of God. You will bind the Word of God on your wrists and on your forehead. Where does this mark go? In place of the Word of God. Let us, let us see that. Also, we clearly see that uh, earlier in the text, early in Revelation, we have seen that God seals his people upon their forehead. And we've already said that is a symbolic seeing. We're not actually going to have numbers and letters and figures and drawings on our foreheads. And then right after chapter 13, we go into chapter 14. And what do we read? Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written where? On their foreheads. Do you, there's a contrast being made. Do you have the mark of the beast? Or do you have the mark of God? This isn't some creative... Un, I mean, we don't have to be creative. Clearly, he's saying, are you owned? Are you protected? Have you been measured by God? Or are you belonging to someone else? That is what the mark is. It shows, are, do we identify with God? Or do we identify with the beasts and Satan? This is not a physical mark. Clearly, that is how the text is leading us. And simply by where it sets the contrast. Here is a mark, and it goes on your forehead. Or, the 144,000 representing the church are marked on their foreheads with the name of God. And in 18, we are told the number of the man, and the number is 666. So what does this mean? Well, there's a book that's in, in, in Western Europe, a little over 300 pages, and it's full of names, of possibilities. Full of names, of possibilities. There are endless possibilities presented here. In the first century, there was a practice called gematria, which what you did is you assigned numbers to letters. So, example, um, uh, the, num- the letter A might be 1, or might be 10, or might be 100. Therefore, B would then be 2, or 20, or, or 200. Um, and so, what you would do is then, the, the practice has been to try to figure out which name adds up to 666. And you want to know what? I can probably make all of your names match. Isn't that cool? I actually thought about doing that and putting a slide up here. Then I was like, ah, that might feel weird. So this is what common practice does. 
Let's say we want someone's name to work. Well, does it work in Hebrew? No. Well, let's try Greek. No. Let's try Latin. Let's try to add a title. Let's abbreviate the title. Let's abbreviate the name. Let's try different spellings of the name. Do you see what we can do? And we can make anyone work. Caesar Nero works. Obama has worked. Ron, I got. I have to be so. I've 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 said this name wrong. So, Ronald Wilson Reagan. That will work. Six letters in each name. Crazy, and he's dead. But maybe he's coming back. Probably not. There are there are amazing theologians in like every every camp, and they all present like a hundred different names. So we can either go, no, there has to be a name, there has to be a guy, and just no one seems to have been able to figure out who, or maybe it means something more than just a name, like an actual person. But maybe if what we've understood so far going through Revelation is that numbers are symbolic, and number seven, which represents uh, perfection and God's sovereignty, which is why when Satan has seven heads, it's that impersonation of him, And yet now we have a number 666, each number one less than perfection. Each number falls short. Each number is false. Could that not be simply the very identity of anything other than God falls short of God, falls short of completion, falls short of the very perfection of the one true God? We could wrestle all day with other possibilities, but I think that becomes the clearest understanding. And if it did mean Caesar Nero in the first day or, or something like that, then we would know that surely that was who it first was pointing to, just as the first horn represents Antiochus Epiphanes, but then surely it points towards the greater Antichrist who is coming. So it might point towards either figures or a possible figure someday. But what we understand is that you either have the seal of God or the mark of Satan. Those are the two possibilities. And we're all born in rebellion to Jesus Christ. And we read in Revelation 19 that the end result of all who have the mark that will face will one day face the wrath of Jesus Christ the true lamb. We read in 19 that that the beast and the false prophets will be thrown into the lake of fire. And all who have the mark of the beast will be slain. But for those who have the seal of God, those who have trust in Jesus Christ, because of their faith in God, they are promised to spend eternity with God in paradise. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. In fact, D.A. Carson, uh, amazing theologian, he, I listened to a sermon, he, was, he spoke on this, and he said, which wrath do you want to face? Do you want to face the wrath of the dragon, which is temporary and limited to time here on earth, or do you want to face the wrath of the Lamb of God, which is eternity, which is eternal? Which mark do you want? Yes, by having the mark of the beast today might mean persecution and suffering today, but will surely then end up. Did I say that right? I was like going, I was like, man, I don't think mark of the beast. And, you have the seal of God, which means you'll be under the wrath of the Lamb, which, no, this is getting terrible. You know where I'm going, though, right? <laughs> seal of God, wrath of the beast, now. 
which is temporary and ends in paradise, or the, <laughs> the mark of the beast now, which, which will surely make it life easier, or, or and then face the eternal wrath of the Lamb in the future. I'm not going to repeat that. <laughs> you know where we were at. Seriously, that's a lot harder than preaching through. <laughs> um, so let, let's make some closing comments. The response of the church. This, this I think, is, is the important part. Revelation is meant for the church. It's meant to persevere the church. So as we read things in Revelation, it's meant to go, how does this move us to worship God? How does this move us to be strengthened in our faith? And so I think that's what we need to look at. Regardless of exactly where we end up on all the details, there's these beasts who represent secular state powers and false religions that are all seeking to move us away from worshiping the one true Jesus Christ to worshiping anything else. And there is a war, and it will cost us our lives. So what do we do? How do we respond? Number one, we are conquerors. We cannot forget context. Chapter 12, last week, we read, Jesus Christ has conquered Satan. Five times, Satan has been thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. The point is, he's defeated. Christ is the glorious king who has defeated him. Chapter 1, Jesus is pre presented in a glorious vision, holding the keys of death in Hades, showing he has triumphed over death, over Satan. And we are told in chapter 12, 11, we, the church, on basis of our faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, are conquerors now. That is what we need to know. So life is war. Life is hard. It might cost us our life. We are victors now. We cannot get tunnel vision into, oh, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be persecution, and just seeing the pain here, we must step back and see there's a whole purpose in this. And we are not at uh, the beast. We, the beast is not able to do all that he wishes to us. Ultimately, we are already victorious in Christ. He can do nothing more than threaten to take our lives, which according to Paul, to live is Christ, and to what? To die is Gain. And we know Romans, Romans 8, the very end, where it says, therefore there's no principality, no angel, and I'm messing it all up, no death, but there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, not even a beast. Nothing separates us. So if you're reading this, you're just going, oh, this is scary stuff. Yeah, kind of. Like, it's a part of scary, right? But there's this whole other part of, we're victorious in Christ. And we cannot forget that. And because we are victorious, we know that there is a book. And in chapter 13, 8, we are told that our names before the foundation of the world have been written in, a, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If you are here today and you've believed in Jesus Christ, then know this, that even before God created the world, He has written your name in a book. And the book before creation was titled, The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. And your name is in that, and there is no erasing that book. So Satan has nothing he has against you. Let us not be deceived by appearances here on earth. Satan's powerful, yes, but he's defeated, waiting his final destruction we need to know that so that's number one 
Number two, we persevere. Your faith is not revealed in the fact that you simply call yourself a Christian. The beast has deceived many people into thinking they're Christians who show absolutely no sign or evidence of their faith. Real faith produces real fruit in our lives. Now, I'm not saying we're saved by any works. Do not misunderstand that. But true works will flow out of true faith. Apple trees come from apple seeds. If you get something else, that's weird. Could be cool, but probably just weird. Real faith produces real, real fruit. And one thing we see throughout Scripture is that faith will produce perseverance. In fact, that's what we see here, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. So we're seeing things are going to happen. Just as your name has been already inscribed, predestined in the Lamb's book of life, you may be predestined to be dying through sword or some other means. If that's the case, it's going to happen. But what's, what's the command for us now? We don't worry how we're going to die. We simply persevere because we know our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we are called to persevere. Jesus did not save us. So we would have pretty red brick houses, white picket fences, and daisies blooming at all times. Now if that happens, that's great. That is not what he promises. Jesus has called us to be his ambassadors here on earth. He's called us to live like him, to take up our cross like him, proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ here on this world. He has called us to be a part of his kingdom, which makes us at war with the other kingdom. Therefore, perseverance is the mark of the true Christian. We need to know this. So many Christians do not understand this. And there are many people who are in the church who are there by name only. But they do not know what it is to live by faith. Perseverance does many things. Let me just give two. Perseverance refines our faith. Remember, we're in the wilderness, time of preparation before the the true promised land, the new heavens and new earth. This is why James says in James chapters 1, 2, and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what what does our perseverance do through trials? Produces steadfastness, more perseverance, that perfects us as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. And we know what that's like. That's what we do with our children, right? We discipline them. We give them chores, their trials, right? As a means of preparing them for adulthood. And in a much grander way, a much greater way, God does things for us, which we would not necessarily choose, but he says, no, no, this is what you need. I will teach you how to depend upon me here. I will teach you my lavishness of my grace here. Perseverance also reveals the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Think about this. When we willingly choose to suffer because of our faith, rather than to play it safe and blend into this world, what does the world see? They see that we count the glories of Jesus far more costly than the breath of our life. The death of the saints has been the testimony of the glorious 
treasure of Jesus Christ. And it's not always death, but simply just the trials. The fact that we endure trials and we continue to do so with, the, with hope, with joy. And we need a church to do so. You can't endure trials alone. We need one another for the purpose of strengthening ourselves so that we might proclaim to this world the, the infinite beauty of Jesus Christ and that he is far more costly, far more precious, a far greater treasure than anything this world has to offer, even a few more days or years of my life. Let us persevere. Number three, I think one of the main applications of this text would be we need to know the gospel. What's the purpose of Satan? He's coming to destroy and to deceive. It's easy to pull weeds out. It's hard to pull oak trees out, right? Weeds have small, shallow roots. Oak trees have deep, strong roots. We want to be Christians like oak trees rooted deep in the word of God that when these trials come we are not wavering that when deceptions come we can see clearly through them throughout the new testament there is warning after warning after warning about false teachers Matthew 7:15 Jesus says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves in 2 Corinthians, we read that Satan is an angel of, or he disguises himself as an angel of light. Let us be very weary or aware there is deception within the church. Do not believe, even as I preach this, like you should, like as I read this, you should be, oh, you're in the church teaching. Like, right? You should be thinking that. You should be, why should I believe what you say? Why should you? Do not believe anything that I say because I say you should believe it. Only believe that which comes from here. This is what we hold. This is what's inspired. I am not inspired. Neither is any other person who stands before any other pulpit at any other place. This is what we believe. And if anything I say or someone else contradicts this, we need to test them. We need to make sure it sticks in here. If we're going to stand firm... We must recognize the wolves in sheep clothing. And the way we do that best is by knowing the very word of God. 2 Timothy 3.14, referring to the gospel, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And I think we need to follow that. Let us continue. This is the gospel that has saved us. Let it be the gospel that sustains us and perseveres us. And that happens as we continue to study the word of God. Hear this, if you're here, what your family needs most, what the people you work with needs most, is for you to know the gospel. Because if you're going to share the gospel with them, you need to know the gospel. If you're going to point out deceptions, if men, if you're going to shepherd your families, if you're going to help your children, help your wives, understand the deceptions of this world, you need to know the gospel. It's great if you can teach your kids how to do a hundred other hobbies and stuff. I mean, that's fun, Right? But there's one thing that we're called to do is train them up in the Word. We need to know that. Let us be men and women and students of the Word. And let us, let us, not, let us not think that false teaching is limited to only human institutions or religious institutions. Humanism is an example today that is 
is very prevalent. Humanism basically says, it's a form of atheism that says, you can be the best you and you need absolutely no divine interference. It is, it is largely saying that every person is good in themselves and you can be good. You don't need God. We have people in the church. Um, churches are filled with people who are now articulating and saying things in addition to the word of God. Churches have compromised on inerrancy. Churches have compromised on inspiration. They're saying that this is outdated. They're saying that the Bible needs to be updated. They're saying that God has changed his mind. They say that some passages are no longer relevant. And that is applicable to so many topics of today. Churches are filled today with people saying they have fresh words from God. They, they have special messages, things that, that come in addition to Scripture. And even these people will defend their actions and lifestyles not based upon Scripture, but based upon feelings, based upon desires, based upon, they say, well, this is how God made me. He wouldn't want to change me. Because ultimately what we are doing is we are redefining God in our image. That is what idolatry does. It is... Idolatry makes gods into the image of man. And they make much of us then. That's, that's the point. And when you hear those words, well, this is who I am. This is how God made me. He wouldn't want to change me. They've bought into the deception of this world. And God does want to change you. He wants to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life and bring you into his family, into the kingdom of God, that you would have eternal life and reign with him forever because apart from him, you will have the mark of beast and therefore you will be separated for all of eternity. Yes, God wants to change you because in and of yourself, you are not good enough, but we are all sinful and depraved. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he comes, to save us from ourselves. If we were good enough, Jesus wouldn't have come. And so we need to know that deceptive message is out in the world very much today. Uh, there's far, far more than what you could say. Lastly, we use wisdom. We see that in verse 18. This is a call for wisdom. I think he's calling us when he's saying that to be aware of just how the, dece how the deception works, how the beast will work in this world. Um, but largely, I think this passage is meant to remind us that we are conquerors, remind us of the need of standing firm in the gospel, and remind us of our need for one another. If we're going to stand firm against this gospel, we need one another. I need you. You need me. We're called to come alongside one another for the purpose of praying, for the purpose of strengthening each other, which is one reason why we gather like this. And I would say, if church attendance is sporadic for you, be very careful you're not falling into deception. Be very, very careful. It's not that we must always be here every Sunday morning, but there's a point when we're told to gather as often with the church. And let us not give up on the gathering of the church, which we read in Hebrews, because it's in the church we encourage each other. That can be here, that can be in table groups, that can be tonight when we gather in prayer. I know we can't make everything, but if we're not in anything, 
we might really begin to wonder what kind of deception we're falling into. And so I encourage you, this is why we uphold church membership. We want to see people involved. We want to see, call people into membership, into accountability with the church for the building up of the body of Christ because there is a war. and Neutrality is not an option. We need one another to stand firm. And so I encourage you, wherever you're at today, I encourage you to, to think about your involvement with the church, to think about your you're studying of the word. And how is God calling you, changing you, challenging you just in this text today and making you aware of the deceptions that are around us today? Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and call the men forward.